you're the one that should be worried. You're a freak. You're heading for big trouble. Big trouble. By the middle 1990s, alternative rock had apexed. A once underground scene had gone mainstream. I, like most, had mixed feelings. Yeah, it was great seeing bands like Tool, Alice in Chains, and Rage Against the Machine get their due. I'd go out to nightclubs in New York City, and even the suburbs. And this was the music kids were bumping to. It was all over the radio. It dominated the then-fledgling festival circuit. I was one of those kids. I was there for it. Drinking $5 tap water at Lollapalooza, in my sleeveless flannel and my backwards baseball cap. The flip side of it was that this music was no longer mine. It belonged to teenage girls too, to the malls, to the bros, and to the posers. It made me like it just a little less. The stonecutters would try to dumb it all down, because money. The music would suffer, the flame would burn out. What was once cool to me would now be Kool-Aid to most everyone else. And I was a Tang guy. Fucking Tang, man. And within a few short years, that's what happened. Kurt was dead. Metallica got haircuts. The music industry was changing, and the dinosaurs who ran it only had one model. The business ate itself and swallowed a lot of really good bands along with it. Michael Ferentino was in one of those bands, a New Jersey-based three-piece called Love in Reverse. What began as a dark electronic art rock duo known as Dog quickly evolved into a trio that recorded three critically acclaimed releases with Warner Brothers spin-off Reprise Records. They packed some of New York and New Jersey's iconic watering holes, CBGB, The Stone Pony, The Limelight. They signed with crazed management, John and Marsha Zazula, influencers of the time and of the scene, local legends. Then they signed a major label deal. The band now known as Love in Reverse had scaled the mountain When the peaks are high, so too is the peril. Major label deals can lead to major label problems. And it wasn't long before Love and Reverse were dropped. I knew we were in trouble when they got us hooked up with their A&R person, who was a very nice lady. But when we went into her office and I saw her CD collection behind her, I was scoping it. And I noticed that the only album I related to out of anything she had on there was an album by Ambrosia. I was like, oh my God, we're in trouble. I was like, this girl does not get us. And she's like, I don't understand this music at all, but they've assigned me to. I'm like, oh my God, we're in the corporate world here. This was the corporate world. Big business and bean counters. And it was changing. Part of that change meant taking away the beans to help developing artists grow. Love in Reverse was now in neutral. But the guys in the band just found new vehicles. That's because Michael Ferentino, the band's singer and guitarist, can't stop. In the two decades since he and the major label music industry broke up, he and his bandmates have never been more prolific. And as you'll hear, Michael Ferentino has been pretty damn prolific. I was in my own New York and New Jersey bands during this time, 
I was just getting started. I've lived my own version of this story. And so when I had the opportunity to visit Michael at his home in Florida and compare notes for episode 130 of the Independent Minded Podcast, I took it. Michael and I talk about getting signed, getting dropped, his father's influence, music therapy, and the resurrection of Love in Reverse. Let's kick things off with Manifesto from the most recent Love in Reverse album, Fake It, then my conversation with Michael Ferrantino, right here on Independent Minded. Michael Ferentino moved away from his roots and his bandmates a decade ago. He traded the swamps of Jersey for Tampa palm trees. I was working on mostly electronic music for several years at that time. That was all instrumental kind of stuff. And I got the bug to start writing songs again, getting into like lyrics and melodies and whatnot. Michael dipped into a familiar well, sending some of those lyrics and melodies to his longtime friend and collaborator, Andres Carew. But... Something always seemed to get in the way. One year passed, five years, seven years. And then finally around 2019 is when we got really serious about it and started really putting down some tracks and getting Dave involved again. And we we're going to make a record. We didn't care where it went. We we're going to put it out there ourselves. And if some of our old fans discovered it, great. If some new people discovered it, great. If it was just for us, great. We didn't give a shit either way. We were just trying to make a record that we would be proud of. Seems like a pretty basic goal for an artist, but it's complicated. And without some behemoth promo machine behind you, your record likely won't get much notice. But in 1996, when you release an album backed by Warner Brothers, it's going to get attention. My fellow college radio programmers took notice. So did industry tastemakers like MTV. Cup of tea and a bottle of fruit. 
1998, the band released their second full length. Then they got dropped. The majors may have given up on Love in Reverse, but the band certainly didn't give up on music. I wish I knew how to quit you. In the years that followed, in the dawn of file sharing and the digital age, the industry around the band had begun its gradual decline. Fast forward to Andres and Michael's exchange of ideas. It was an evaluation of, did I take the right path after leaving Love in Reverse? Should I ever revisit that era of my life again? Yeah, it took Love in Reverse a minute to finally release a third proper album. And by a minute, I mean 22 years. But none of this would have happened if not for Michael Ferrentino's first 22 years. All this time. Michael grew up in Whiting, New Jersey. Brooklyn guys like me would refer to that area of Jersey as the woods. Young Michael wasn't exactly living in an artistic hotbed, but he didn't have to look far to find some musical inspiration. My dad was a uh, very serious musician signed to some major labels in the 60s in the doo-wop and surf music era. He was in a band called the Statins from Staten Island. Won't someone please tell me when will I find love? True love is the Their manager was a guy who wrote Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. Really big song, I'm sure most people know by the animals and it's been covered a billion times. The Statins were briefly signed to MGM. Dick Clark talked up one of their tunes on American Bandstand. They did a number of really pretty interesting things, but never went to the next level, very much like myself. So this is in your genes, though? It's in our genes, yes. Uh, It's in our genes to both be very creative and also get fucked by the music business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one thing we have in common. You broke my heart, you broke my heart, you broke my heart. My dad takes a lick and it keeps on ticking. 80 years old, you would swear he could hang with us right now. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. He's, a, he's an awesome dude. But he's the one that introduced me to music, really. Joe Ferentino handed his son a guitar at age six. By the time Michael was 10, Joe was taking him to the recording studio. We started getting really serious about it, and we actually released an album together in the early 80s under a band called Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Where the hell am I? How did I come this way? The music video for In the Name Of... The title track of Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost's 1984 album is truly a sight to behold. In a short prologue, middle-aged Joe Ferentino falls asleep at the wheel and dies. Minutes later, he's somehow performing at his own funeral in leather pants. Joe and the band strut and preen atop a hill inside a graveyard. And there's long-haired Michael Ferentino, shredding hair metal licks that would make K.K. Downing proud. A hearse, a coffin, smoke machine, zebra print, a satanic priest, even a cliffhanger. Holy shit, this video is fucking incredible. It was very cheeky, but I've always had a love for stuff like John Waters, Frank Zappa, George Carlin, Monty Python. A lot of these things definitely sneak their way into my music. It's the same in Love in Reverse, the band's name notwithstanding. Caustic commentary and messaging underneath catchy hooks. Songwriting is clever and sly. Song titles are self-referential. There's a lot of humor in the madness of the world. Michael Ferentino and Andres Carew have been friends since kindergarten. 
we met when he first moved to my neighborhood. I had been there a few years with another guy named Matt Schmidt, who was our road manager and the guy that literally when Andres and I were in the studio working, he was out on the streets handing out flyers to get yeah. us in the club. Meet a guy like that. He was meeting all the club managers, handing out all of our stuff. He was amazing. And he's still one of my best friends to this day. We always stayed friends. We were all into music. We grew up on bands like the Beatles and Kiss and had all had an equal obsession with Farrah Fawcett together. We actually had a, a period of time where we were like in competition of who could collect the most pictures of Farrah yeah, Fawcett. One of my favorite musicians, Farrah Fawcett. When we were eight years old. We could discuss my game over a gin fizz at the bar. Either way, I'm a big tipper. <laughs> and I just bet with that golden personality of yours, you know just about everything that goes on around here. A few years removed from their Farrah Fawcett obsession, Michael and Andres began writing songs together. The seeds were planted for what Love in Reverse would eventually become. Then Michael had second thoughts about a career in music. But like I said at the top, Michael Ferrentino can't stop. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life, thinking about going to college and all that crap. I started a project that I called Dog. And the idea was uh, God spelled backwards, you know, really, really pretentious. And I wanted to create this as this was going to be some cheeky, really ridiculous religion cult kind of thing. And what I wanted to do is meld a number of genres together that I was really into. So everything from post-punk, really underground lo-fi metal to electronic music that I was discovering at the time, bands like Tangerine Dream, Jean-Michel Jarre. There were no rules, it wasn't commercial, but yet if I wanted to write a pop song, that could happen too. Whatever I wanted to do in that, that was what it was gonna be. With Dog, Michael steps in a darker direction. Michael makes an album's worth of material, he can't wait to play it for his friends. And Andres pulls out a tape that he had just made. He had found this old reel-to-reel recorder in his basement that his dad owned. There was a tape that was on there that he decided he was going to record over that his dad had. But some sound started bleeding through it. So all his backwards music was happening. And he recorded this thing. It was an instrumental with a drum machine that he had acquired guitar through a direct reverb kind of sound that was just absolutely brilliant. I was just in love with this thing that he did. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, man. But there was no lyrics or anything. And then I played him my dog out. I'm like, this reminds me of what I'm doing. I played him that. And we were both like, holy shit, we're like doing the same kind of music now. And you know, this has been several years we hadn't played together. Why don't we do this together? He goes, I love your idea of this dog, God spelled backwards and making it like a weird cult thing and making it almost like a religion. He goes, that's what's exciting to me about music is when you get into a band and it becomes this thing you want to find different things out about, we'll put secret messages in the music and all of that. So it was really pretentious and cheeky, our original concept. But we wanted to meld all the things we loved, everything from the Beatles' White Album, some of that backward shit that they were doing, uh, Revolution 9 and that stuff. And then mix in the metal stuff that we liked, the sort of new wave and I guess post-punk music that we were getting into at that time, and the electronic music that I was really into. 
And then the one artist that brought us together at that time that we were obsessed with was Prince. When I first started out in uh, this music industry, I was most concerned with freedom. Freedom to produce, freedom to uh, play all the instruments on my records, freedom to say anything I wanted to. It's almost like there are no rules, right? I mean, he was making pop songs, but there was no boundaries. It was rock music, it was soul music, it was funk music, it was pop music, it was jazz, it was everything. That was our idea. Let's do the two suburban white boy version of Prince, but with a dark edge to it. We did literally 30 albums worth of music and it evolved over time. Some of it was more acoustic based, some of it, we were really just experimenting. We didn't really have a direction. Direction or no direction, 30 albums, bruh. And if you find that excessive, you ain't heard nothing yet. 1994, I went through a manic episode where I recorded 14 albums worth of music. Some of it was the two of us together and most of it was by myself. That's how you describe it, a manic episode? It was a manic episode, for sure. I was like, literally, I went through some weird stuff in my family. My cousin had, we thought, committed suicide, but found out later it was more likely murdered. And wow. it was just a crazy time in my life. And I was going through some depression, anxiety, and I started realizing I have some kind of thing going on mentally here. So to get through all of that, I used music therapy, really. And I locked myself down in my parents' basement in my little studio and literally recorded 14 albums worth of music that year. Music therapy, he calls it. I understand this. A few times in my life that I could feel myself falling apart. Every day a struggle to just keep it together. Making music didn't seem so much a solution as it did a destination. Put it on the paper so you don't keep it inside. Expunge it. Exercise it. It makes you wonder, do we write and make music and art to stop ourselves from going crazy? Or do we write and make music and art because we already are crazy? Whatever the reason, that creative release, inspired by hard times and pain, often pays dividends. I had written a song called The Romantic Age, a song called I Inject You, and a song called Counting on Him, and a song called Solo Flight. And these all became the beginning of that first EP by Love and Reverse. So Andres heard this and he's like, I don't know what you're doing, but something has changed here in this last thing that you're doing. And I think that everything we've ever worked on is coming together into something special and something new here. Do you mind if I take this and play with it for a little while and see what I can come up with? That's when we realized this is what we do best together. I write a song, I give it to him, he takes it to a different place. 
I leave him alone while he's doing that. He doesn't say anything about the songwriting process. It's like, just write the songs, give them to me, and let me play around with some ideas. And then he comes back to me after he's like put some new drum parts, and maybe this change in the melody here, maybe this change in the structure of the song. Next thing we know, we have the basis for what becomes Love in Reverse. Michael and Andres come up with three albums worth of material. The cycle of hustle begins. Shows are played. People who know people get to know the band. And a buzz blossoms. We would send stuff out. We would literally, we would pound the pavement. We went to the new music seminar. We would call this label. We would send demos. We'd make connections. We had managers come into our house telling us, oh, you guys would be great. You got to get a drummer, though. And you got to be more commercial. And you need to change this and change this. And ultimately, we're like, we're not interested in doing anything other than what we do. But we were starting to get onto the idea that it would be cool to have a drummer. Those demos actually got into the hand of a guy named John Zazula and Marsha Zazula, two very brilliant, awesome people. John was my really close friend all the way up until he just died. Yeah, we lost both of them recently, yeah, which was, uh, was tough. Yeah, yeah Marsha and John were two of the most wonderful people I've ever known in my life, honestly. Huge music fans. Much as they're known for their metal background and discovering Metallica, Anthrax, Raven, Merciful Fate, all these great yeah, King's metal X. bands, King's X. Much as they're known for all of that and starting Megaforce Records, they're really big music fans way outside of that genre. They're really into soul and funk and R&B. They're really into Jefferson Airplane. But they're, I mean, they're into it to levels that, like above and beyond yeah. most people. Well, it's crazed management, crazed about yeah. you know, all that stuff. Right? Yeah, really <laughs> cool. And they wanted to reinvent themselves in the 90s and they sold Megaforce off to one of their like people that worked at the company at the time. And they decided, you know, we're going to just become managers and try to work with different artists. They ended up managing ministry. He was really just trying to figure out where am I going next? And he got a hold of our demo, which had the song I Inject You on it, which was the song that caught his ear. He called us up one day in our studio. I answered the phone. Yeah, this is Michael. And he's like, this is Johnny Z. And I'm like, uh, Johnny Z, like Johnny Z, like Megaforce Records, Johnny Z. And he's like, yeah, I got your record here. Uh, I think it's brilliant. I want to meet with you guys. I'm like, you, who the fuck is this? I thought someone was fucking with me, one of my friends. And he's like, no, I'm serious, man. I'm, I'm dead serious. <laughs> he goes, I'm actually going to see a show, a band called Our Lady Peace. I want you to be my guest. I just want to meet you guys and talk to you, feel things out, see if we get along. And I'm like, yeah, we're glad to do that. So I figured I'm gonna, he's not going to really be there. It's going to be one of my friends fuck with me. Yeah, I met Johnny and Marsha Zazula. I'm standing there, and they were cool as shit. We're backstage hanging out at that show, and really nice people. And they're like, we love what you guys are doing. We have an idea of how to market this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone tell me or a member of my band, we have an idea on how to market this. Actually, I can tell you. Seven. Or something like that. Anyway, none of those dummies were a married couple who set bands like Metallica and Anthrax on their paths. 
Michael knows this too. And so signing with Crazed Management is a no-brainer. They became our managers at that time. We became their clients. We just really hit it off and became really close friends with them for a long time. The initial plan was that the Zazulas would start a new boutique indie label to release Michael and Andres' music. And then... He calls me out of the blue one night and he's like, Can you get a show tonight in Asbury Park? And I was like, well, uh, uh, that's going to be a hard... That's not easy to do on the scene uh, tonight. Yeah, let me call I'll the Stone call Pony. A few friends. I, I was like, <laughs> in fact, uh, my friend Scott at the time who ran uh, the Saint, like one of the coolest clubs that we used to love to play. I called him up. I'm like, do you have a show going on tonight? He goes, yeah, of course. I was like, do you think we can open for whoever you have going yeah, on 15 there? Fifteen minutes, right? And he's yeah. like, yeah. Because like, I forget who it was. It was a local band actually that night. I was like, we'll open for them. I don't give a shit. I was like. We just need to get a show because Johnny Z from Megaforce Records, who is now my manager, along with his wife, Marsha, they are bringing out the president of Warner Reprise only because he's coming to his house for a barbecue. And they were coming because they were friends. They were friends because they worked at ministry together. And he said, I've got Howie Klein from Reprise at my house tonight. He's the president of the label. I'm going to kidnap him and bring him to your show. Howie and I, after we had signed, he brought this story up. He goes, yeah, at the time, he was like, God, Jesus, I knew he was going to force me into some stupid shit. I thought I was just going to a barbecue. (laughs) It's going to make me listen to one of his bands. And he's like, and I was not looking forward to like that. I I wanted a day off. Yeah. He's like, but Johnny brings me into this little club in the middle of Asbury Park. And I see these two guys on stage, one of them. You know, bald head and the other blonde and red hair or black and red hair, whatever Andres was doing at that time. Kind of like the way a lot of people look now is what I thought. It was kind of interesting. We were always trying to, like, be futuristic. That was always our thing, too. I will also interject and say at that time, even though alternative music had taken on a life of its own, two guys up there with a drum machine and a bald guy. And I can speak to that as well. We'll talk about that. But... um, I would imagine just immediately before you even hit a note, you kind of stand out a little bit, right? From the normal band that's kind of coming through the Saint at that time, I would imagine. Right. It was like, so he walks in and he sees this. He goes, I see this thing. He's like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Make me watch. (laughs) And he's like, and then I heard one song after the next, after the next, after the next. And and apparently the way he tells the story is, I was blown away and I wanted to sign you right then and there. Klein didn't sign Michael and Andres right then and there. Instead, a meeting in New York was arranged. He's like, here's the thing. I'm in love with this band. I love the songs. I'm a little bit in this world of grunge and everything being so organic and authentic. A little bit squeamish about all the electronics. Yeah, which is interesting considering where the industry went after. Where it went after. But at that time, everything was really like, everybody looked like a fucking lumberjack. Yeah, your sleeveless flannel. We were dressed up in like sequins. And like we were (laughs) were kind of going back on that David Bowie, 70s glammy kind of thing.
Howie Klein and Warner Brothers had signed Madonna, Alanis Morissette. Even if Howie Klein loved your music, signing with a major label meant tweaking things, like changing your band's name. He's like, because I don't know about this dog. There's also a band called Tom Something's Dog out in California, and we may have some legal problems with that. I honestly think that he wasn't worried about that. He just didn't like the name and wanted us to change it. And adding a drummer. We hit it off immediately. He was like a brother from another mother. Dave Halpern filled out the trio that was now called Love in Reverse. When I discovered this band in the mid-90s, saw pictures of them, I saw something I rarely saw back then. A young dude with a shaved head fronting a rock band. I've always had an obsession with shaving my head from, I'm going to say, the 80s. But I suddenly got the guts to do it after watching the film Pulp Fiction. I saw Bruce Willis. Yep. And that's when I did it, 1994. I saw that film. Well, we shaved like, our head in the same year. I was like, damn, he looks great. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I know. That's why it was like when you said that. I was like, that's the year I did it too. And that, that is the thing that gave me the confidence to try it. I was worried. I'd feel my head around and be like, is there a lump there? I'm yeah. I don't want to be walking around. What do I look like? like I have a cantaloupe on my neck? Or, yeah. You know? I'll never forget Andres' reaction because I had long black hair prior to this. Okay, I never had long hair. Cher, that's how it looked. It was jet black and like cut like a Cleopatra cut across the front. <laughs> it was very glam rock. Andres comes to my house one night for rehearsals and as he walks in the door, he's like, oh my God. He's like, I swear to God, this is so weird. I always thought that that would be a great look for you. It looks great. I love it. After the release of I Am Here, the band tours with Gravity Kills, Stabbing Westward, Republica, and the Cults Ian Asbury. Rolling Stone names them one of 1996's most promising bands. But when the alternative bubble bursts a few years later, the majors take out their cookie cutters. They start trimming the fat. Let's take out all the soul of what Sonic Youth stood for, what Jane's Addiction stood for. And that's what we were about, man. We were like a band like those bands. We were doing our thing. We were doing it honestly. We were doing it, it was as real as it gets. In short time, Love in Reverse enters and exits the major label machine. It's the place where, as an artist, you trade in control of these songs that come from your soul, this art that defines who you are and what you believe. You trade it in for next-level access, Grammy award-winning producers, bigger studios, influential publicists, rubbing elbows with Duran Duran. The trade-off is that inside the major label machine, everybody knows everything besides you. Because look at all the platinum records on the wall. And you are no longer in control. Just some young kids who the label president likes. But maybe the radio department doesn't get you. And your A&R guy went to go work across the street. This all spells doom. And then, it's over. The cycle completes. Craziest moment ever is after we actually left Warner Brothers. My first like day job after that, because obviously you're starving to death. <laughs> All of a sudden you have a monthly income and now it's not happening anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're still like gathering your shit together for the next project and deciding what you're gonna do next and you have to work to make money. I worked for an eye doctor. It was at a Sears. To go to the bathroom, you had to walk across the whole place. This is like circa 1999 we're talking about. It was like right? in a shopping mall? Like in a shopping situation. mall. 
and I see one of our videos playing on all the TVs and Sears at the same time. So I'm like, what the fuck is that? How is that possible? It turned out the DVD player had just come out around that time, the Sony DVD player, and our video was one of the actual videos on the demonstration disc that right, came. Right. So I was like, oh my God, this is just too surreal. I'm like working some <laughs> shitty job for 10 bucks an hour after just getting dropped from a record label and seeing my video on every And back then TV when, right, when you go mall. into like a department store that's selling TVs like right. Best Buy or a Sears or whatever, it's not just one TV. It's, it's all like It's like 50 TVs. <laughs> it was crazy. just like almost like, like it was saying, fuck you. <laughs> that's some Black Mirror shit right there. And all the fallout from the breakup threatens to tear the band apart. But remember, Michael Ferentino can't stop. He starts making experimental electronic music that eventually turns into a long-standing and still active project called Bedtime for Robots. He and Andres immediately shift gears and start a band called Amazing Meat Project. This leads to a touring opportunity with Miles Hunt of The Wonder Stuff. It was just the two of us. We did a whole North American tour in my van and did Canada and most of America. And it was like one of the greatest moments in my life. It was so awesome. We totally hit it off. I was opening for him. He had some pretty, you know, established uh, fans in different pockets in Canada and America. So like when we would go to Toronto, it'd be like a huge show. Then we go to middle America. Very few people knew of who either of us were. Can you hear the joy in Michael's voice when he tells this part of his story? It's not the sexy part or even the central part, but it feels like the most grateful part. Michael never seeks a musical day job in a studio or as a teacher, even though he has the knowledge. Never takes a spin in someone else's band as a sideman, even though he has the talent. He wants this drive he has to write and to create, to stay pure. He takes care to keep it special. I went back to school. I got a, a degree in behavioral neuroscience, a bachelor's degree, no background. I had zero credits at 36. Went and got a bachelor's degree by the time I was about 41, 42. And then ultimately went and became a physician assistant. And that's how Michael ends up in Florida. And how he ends up at peace with all that's happened. I got offered a job here in Tampa by a neurosurgeon doing brain and spine surgery. So I did that for several years and now I do orthopedic um, trauma. What I love about it is I get to help people for a living. It covers all the science stuff that I'm into and I love what I do. But when I'm done, the way I unwind is by continually making new music. And I love doing it more than I ever did because I don't have to do it for anyone but me now. In 2020, quietly, Love and Reverse self-released their third album. It's called I'm an Illusion.
Another one of Michael's childhood friends signs the band to his Texas-based indie label, Dada Drumming Records. This time around, us fans don't have to wait two decades for the next one. Fake It, the band's fourth album, comes out two years later. The kid playing cheeky metal with his doo-wop dad in Jersey. The goth experimenting with new sounds in his basement. The artist collaborating with his childhood friend. The dude who shaved his head before it was cool. Who's ever fascinated by science, innovation, and artistry. He still has things to contribute. Songs to sing and stories to tell. There is no even thought of, well, maybe I'm not tempted to change it for a record label or for, I, oh my God, I have to make money doing this. I don't care about making money from it at all. It's as pure as you could possibly do it. It's a liberation of sorts. Absolutely. So what has Michael Ferentino learned from all this? And what wisdom can he impart from his independent-minded experience? Why does Michael Ferentino never stop if you're an artist, if you're a musician, if you're someone that is obsessed with music the way we are, and I can see you are as well, so you can probably relate to this. It's your life. Make sure you take care of your kids. Make sure you take care of your, your wife or husband or your significant other, whoever you're involved with, or yourself if you're by yourself, your cat if you got a cat. Music is a lifestyle, but remember that life is very short. It's a minute. It's literally a minute. Just do what's real, do what you believe in, never do something for the wrong reasons, always do it with good intentions, never do anything that's gonna hurt someone else in any way, shape, or form, and hopefully the universe is on your side. That's it. Find out more about Love in Reverse at loveinreverse.bandcamp.com and you can support the band and pick up their music and Michael's new solo double album at dadadrumming.org. Big thanks to Michael for inviting me into his home for some wine and inspirational conversation. And hey, thanks to you, loyal listener. Wake up now. The show's over. Show your support for Independent Minded and leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Visit the archives and link to older episodes at baldfreak.com slash podcast. Independent Minded is a Bald Freak music production, and I'm still Ron Scalzo. You're a natural. You're a freak. You're a freak. <laughs> <laughs>